I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dan. And uh, today we welcome an author onto the show. Uh, he is a proud dad, father, husband, uh, son, living in Austin, Texas. And as I look at his bio, I'm just, I'm really impressed. Um, his name is Dean Anderson, and he wrote a book called, Was That a Red Flag? Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, you, you are also uh, sober since 2013. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. So there's a lot here <clears throat> that has gone into your book. So I... For those listening, um, this is a book about red flags that come up in relationships. Now, so often at DASIS and on I'm Not in an Abusive Relationship, we talk about red flags that are kind of the smack you in the face. Oh, yeah, I should have seen that coming, right? Um, oftentimes, it might be jealousy. It might be some kind of uh, verbal before it becomes physical. It might be some kind of a, of a bright red flag. But in all reality... Uh, bad relationships don't have to be this big thing. It can be more subtle. And so you talk in your book about kind of these more subtle overlooked red flags. Is that a fair statement? That would be a very fair statement. I think it's the things that we tend to overlook or maybe things that we think we can change, uh, but we're really kind of fooling ourselves. And uh, we should really take a longer look at those before we get into a committed relationship, but we could probably avoid a lot of misery or pain ourselves. Yeah. So I'd love to get into where all this came from. Let's start, though, with maybe giving listeners a couple of those red flags that we're talking about. Let's paint that picture of what, what does this kind of middle-of-the-road bad relationship look like and some of those more subtle red flags. Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the book covers 12 chapters, uh, and each chapter at the end of it, it's got a list of questions so you can kind of apply it to your own relationship. And I think... There are a lot of things that probably 50, 60 years ago we, we overlooked, and I do think people put more work into those relationships so they lasted longer, uh, but be it, you don't see that as much anymore. Um, I think that people rush into these relationships more than they used to, too, and they don't see the subtle red flags that you mentioned. Um, some of those are just simple things. Um, how opposite are you, you know, or what mutual interest do you have? It's not that people who are opposite can't work, but if you don't enjoy some of the same things, you're going to find that you get into that relationship and you're eventually going to uh, part ways or live two separate lives, which I've, you know, I've done myself and I've seen others do it as well. Um, there's also another topic, which seems like it would be ridiculous, but I don't think it is, um, is religion or politics. Um, you would think 
that that wouldn't have that big of an impact. Or maybe you would think that each couple would kind of slide down one side of the spectrum with the other. But religion's a big one. I think that it's possible. But I do think if you were raised in a certain church or with a certain denomination or certain faith, and you meet someone who is raised in a very similar or almost identical faith, you really are going to hit it off immediately, and but you're going to stand the test of time, and maybe you'll just grow in that spirituality with each other. Whereas if you came from completely different either cultures or religion, really, I think that it has a chance to implode because there's going to be a lot of pride and ego thrown in there. There's going to be anxiety about maybe changing to a different religion or denomination. And I think at first we, we feel like, well, maybe that could work. You know, maybe they're open. They go in open-minded. You can't blame a person for doing that. Uh, but then it really comes down to your core values and what you were raised uh, as a kid. And I think you just have a better chance if it's, uh, if it's pretty matching or at least fairly similar. Uh, those are two. And I can go on to more if you want. Oh yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we can unpack a whole bunch of them. Um, I, I, I'm going to go back to the opposites attract idea sure. because I've, I've heard, of course, we've all heard that opposites attract. Um, I've also heard, you know, even, even from a, a faith perspective of like being opposite on one hand is really good because you all complement each other. If one person is very outgoing and one is kind of more shy, you, you know, one balances the other, you know, opposite male and female opposite um, on all different ways. Right. You can't have sure. a whole drawer full of forks and not eat soup. Right. Or whatever. Like I've heard all that stuff. Um, right. But what I hear you say, Dean, is that like, yes, you can be opposite in some things, but it's important to have commonalities as well. Right. Or at least be open to that, because I think even with my wife now, we had very different upbringings. We grew up in different parts of the country, but we found out together through communication. That's another whole chapter on good communication, but that we were very open about what we liked or what we kind of aspired to do or some of our dreams, goals, and that type of thing. Whereas she, we both found out the love of nature that we both had was so intense, but even we haven't really experienced it in so long because we hadn't been with anybody that wanted to go out in nature and experience it with it, mostly on a hiking level for us. And that happened to be one that we came together and loved that we had really ignored for so many years. And it really brought us, uh, it kind of grounds us and brings us nature always brought us closer to God. We felt like and that was another mutual interest, but one that was not a that became one is when we first started dating, she was, um, she had told me that as a kid in the early seventies, uh, not to date her here, but she, she was a roller skater and a competitive one at that. And it, you know, the seventies was big on roller skating and she loved it. I mean, the way she talked about it, you couldn't even imagine somebody being that into something, uh, maybe comparatively to me to baseball when I was growing up, but, I said, why don't you skate anymore? And she says, ah, I'm too old for it. And I was like, you're never too old for it, especially if you were that good. You wouldn't, you'd be safe in going back to it. So I, I kind of went behind her back and I bought her roller skates. And that way I made it look like she didn't have a choice. You at least got to try it out. And, you know, I created a monster because now she skates three, four or five days a week. Right. So, but the, the part that came together is that I had never stepped on roller skates in my life. I'm from the Northeast. So I've been on hockey skates, but I had never been on a pair of roller skates. And I went out of my way to learn it. I'm not great at it, but I'm decent enough at it where we can go and we can do that together sometimes. And that was me being open-minded and realizing, all right, that's a pretty cool sport. We were both mutual interests when it came to fitness anyway. So we would go, that would another thing that we could tack on the things that we can do together and things that we would never do separate. And it really brought her back her passion for it. You know, now we're four pairs of roller skates into it. 
her. <laughs> the closet's filling up, but she uh, she loves it. And just to see the look on her face when she hits the rink every time or even outside, uh, those are the kind of things I'm talking about because you mentioned it perfectly. I don't even know how you knew that unless you saw that section in my book, but it said balancing it out because I've had a previous relationship where I went into it with good intentions. It, in fact, it was so opposite that I thought it would balance me out or maybe that I would balance her out. And maybe it did in some ways because I think it brought different aspects to the relationship that we were lacking in. But what it really did was just separate where we were so different that we went on different paths and led to different lives. And I hate to see anybody go through that because a relationship, a relationship is supposed to be growing bigger, better, everything together rather than separately. And that's such a learning lesson for me or long, long, long-term lesson that it took me a while to learn. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That living in abundance mentality that you do talk about. I think that's great. Right. Um, it's so interesting because, you know, n- n- when you talk about going your separate ways, it makes me think of like living in the same house, but only being roommates and you're kind of neglect each other and neglect is a form of abuse, right? Like we don't want to label everything abuse, but what we're looking at is if you're not growing together, taking care of each other, serving each other, lifting each other up, you know, is it, is it, is it worth it? Is that all there is? Right. Is one, again, one of the things that you ask in your book. Um, yeah, that's so important. And like, I think about my parents um, still together after 40 some years uh, 45 years now, I think it is. Um, and they are opposite in a lot of ways. Mom likes to read dad watches TV. Um, but they have a love of motorcycles. They ride together all the time. They travel now, they go visit wineries. <laughs> uh, so they find those things that they enjoy together. And so that's what I hear you saying when I, about opposites. Um, so that's really, that's really interesting. And I, um, I think that's, I think that's the, the case too. My parents have been together about 51, 52 years and they're very opposite. But I think that's what I meant by a generational thing, too, to a certain degree. I think they found they put more work into finding commonalities and the two of them could never live without each other. But yet they're dead opposites. And um, they wouldn't they laugh laughingly tell themselves they're not soulmates, but they really they work really well together. And obviously it's worked well. They wouldn't be together for that long. Um, Whereas I think there are certain situations where that could work out really well like that, but they're never going to be that that sort of soulmate twin flame thing they talk about where um, you were just meant to be and some divine thing came into, into play where all of a sudden you were brought. And I say that to you, you know, before the, what we started talking was that, you know, I came all the way down here to Texas. um, And even when I got divorced, I thought I would go back to Massachusetts. I could not because of my children and I wouldn't ever leave them. So um, I stayed here and I (laughs) of getting married again. And then uh, God stepped in and showed me something different. So it was, uh, it was meant to be. Yeah. When we talk about these red flags, <clears throat> another thing I I've, have learned about you, Dean, is that uh, this isn't about, for you anyway, this isn't about placing blame. Um, it's not always the other person necessarily. You found in your relationships that sometimes maybe it's you also. And so, again, framing this in the idea of abusive relationships, sure. we, we, can, we can be... It, we can make bad choices. We could be, you know, you're sober now. You were, an, you are an alcoholic. You right. used to drink. Um, so sometimes it's not always the other person. Sometimes we have to recognize in ourselves that we're doing something wrong too. Talk to me a little bit about that. How was how that journey like for you? I, I agree. I think that it, it, you can't place blame on it. Sometimes it was me. Sometimes it was the other person, or maybe it was always mutual. I don't know. I think 
alcohol got in the way of a lot of my relationships. Um, and I'm to blame for that. And, you know, we go in with good intentions, um, but it doesn't always uh, pan out, you know, especially when we're younger. But I think what I was mentioning to you earlier was that a lot of times it's our own intolerance, like take alcohol out of the picture or even anything like that. I think when you get into a relationship and you see things where, you know, you go into the relationship the first couple of months, you're like, all right, that's kind of annoying. I don't think I like that about that person. Or, you know, I'm not sure I can live with that, you know, but then your brain starts thinking, well, I can change that. And really it's just your intolerance of that other person. And you're not respecting and loving the, the uniqueness of that person that makes then why they should be loved. So, so kind of what you're saying then, Dean, is, is that like we can go into a relationship knowing that we're both going to evolve, that things may change, but we don't want to go in thinking I'm going to change them because then that breeds that intolerance that you're talking about. And that can lead to this, again, bad relationship, not bordering on abuse, but like just a bad relationship, right? Yeah. Of us, you know, uh, at least the ones I know have gone in thinking they were going to be abusive in any way. But I think just the intolerance that people's uniqueness leads to that or themselves to change uh turns these relationships into something that it never was supposed to be and uh even though you had good intentions it, it turns into something that there's a lot of resentment but once the once the resentment stack up it uh it becomes an ugly situation and maybe you could just avoid that by not ignoring those subtle red flags at the beginning and go and find something that was better suited for you and not wasting that other person's time too yeah yeah, absolutely. So what is it that led you to actually write this book? I mean, a lot of people say, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to, I mean, I've, I'm guilty of it. I have all these ideas, but what is it that pushed you to be like, okay, I'm going to put this out on paper. I'm going to get it out there. I want to share this story. Okay. That's a, that's a cool part of the story. I, I got sober about eight years ago. Um, and I had, I had met my wife who was in that uh, 12 step program at the time. And we were just friends and I was having the, the toughest time trying to get sober. Uh, so we were friends for a good couple of years and uh, I'd gone through a divorce and we stayed friends. In fact, in that program, it was almost had to be pointed out to us because we had no plans of getting into a relationship that maybe you two are in a relationship and just don't realize it because we, <laughs> we're together all the time. And it just we hadn't turned romantic yet, uh, but we were so well suited for each other. And a lot of times I tell you not to get so uh, to get a to get a significant other early in sobriety. It's not the smartest idea. Um, but I had gone to some uh, some much wiser, older men than me, and they said, normally we would say don't go down that road, but there's something about the two of you that seems to work, and we think that it would be even better for your sobriety, strangely enough, um, which is not usually the case. So that's kind of how it started, that relationship. Both of us had, become, had come from some broken marriages, and um, we both had two kids, and um, we had a lot of similarities, not just the, the drinking, because she's uh, sober as well, mm. but just a lot of it was odd, like some of her best friends that she grew up with in Texas were from Boston. So there was a weird match between us anyway, which is where I'm originally from. And uh, we just had both a sarcastic, quick wit type thing that really bantered that went on well between us. But we were, we were dating. We both said we'd never get married again. And then I just realized I couldn't live without the woman. And I think I surprised her by asking her. And, uh, and we just realized it, we, we couldn't be separate. And it, it was, it was, at least to us, it was meant to be. So we got married about two years into that in 2015. And as time went on over the years, many people, some friends, some people on Facebook, some strangers, uh, some acquaintances or coworkers or whatever were coming to us and say, we want what you have. 
And we kind of laughed at it at first because we didn't quite know what they were talking about. We were just being us. And there was absolutely nothing fake about us. And I think that's why they came to us and said, what's, how is it so genuine? Or is it really so genuine? Or are you full of it? You know, so uh, we got enough of those comments. And then a family friend, um, family, a family that I've been friends with since I was a, a little kid, um, said, why don't you write something? And I thought, well, I'm not a writer, but uh, if there's something that I can do to be of service to others and help somebody else, if somebody, if I write something and one person avoids a bad relationship, maybe it's worth putting on paper. So be it, I'm not a writer. I didn't really know how to go about doing it. Um, so I ended up just writing uh, chapter titles, 12 of them, put them down on paper and kind of stared at them for a good couple of days. And I decided, okay, that's going to be the 12 chapters that I write. I decided that's what I want. And then uh, each month, just like the year. Uh, I wrote a chapter per month and it's a really short book. So it's not like it took me a whole month to do it, but I really had to put some thought into each one of them and the questions, because I feel like it's almost like a workbook piece where you really, you could just flip through this book real fast and read it, but you're not going to retain anything. But if you're forced in some ways to answer the questions that are end of each chapter, then you start applying it to yourself. And in my opinion, that's what I really wanted to see happen because I wished I had that before I get into some of the relationships I did. So to answer your question, that's how it came about. And uh, my wife was a big help because she probably is a better writer than me. And she, she was helping me kind of edit part of it. And then we just found a, a publisher that was interested in it a little bit. And that process ended up being, being a lot of fun. So I'm actually writing book number two now about sobriety, not about relationships. So. Oh, right on. So, so you're, it sounds like you're one of those guys, one of those people who just want to be of service to others and to share your story and tips to just help make the world a better place. I, I think so. I think the way I grew up, I was raised to be like that. I had great parents. I came from a great town uh, in Massachusetts and we had a good upbringing. I think the drinking sent me down a road. I didn't want to go down. Um, but I was always, it was pointed out to me and it's kind of, kind of humorous, I suppose. It wasn't humorous when it was first told to me, but I, I, I understand it now is that I always wanted to help people. I always went out of my way to help people, but um, when you get sober, you kind of pointed out a lot of the, the defects that you have uh, and try to work on getting through them. And I think if, if I look back now to some of the either philanthropic work or just stuff I did to help people, um, did I really want recognition for those things? You know, and that kind of takes the humility out of it. Um, and it's ironic that I have a book and I'm on a podcast right now uh, because that would make it sound like I'm trying to be noticed again. But really, it's just the push to get people to know about it so that if they do read it, it will help somebody. Because I think in sobriety now, these last eight years, my spiritual growth and personal growth uh, is, is a 180 from where I used to be. And I think that I sincerely want to help people. And that's my main goal is to be able to, uh, to help as many people as I can in this world um, that I come across, you know, in the, in this life. And I think that if I come across anybody, whether it's somebody who wrote the book or somebody that just crossed my path in everyday life, I hope that after crossing my path, that their life's a little more open-minded or better after talking to me. That's, that's all I can wish for, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. But I think checking your, your ego and checking your reasons keeps you in that humility. Um, and it sounds like motives behind everything. I mean, if yeah. you really sit there and question your motives before every decision you make, you really start to be, you, you still, you start to question who you are. And then you start to become a better person or you start to become what God created you to be in the first place. Yeah. So your, your 
push us to be of service. So let's give one more chance for advice and service for you uh, before we tell everybody where to go to okay. find the book and everything. Um, what's if, if there was one of these chapters or one of the questions or one to walk away with, what's the biggest piece of advice from your book that you want people to see? I think the growing old together, uh, but growing together in a way that your lives just become more enriched and more abundant as you get, as you grow, go through this life together. I think there's nothing better than when, and I mentioned this in the book, than when you come home from work or wherever you're at and, you, and an idea pops into your head and you say to yourself, what do you think about this? Or you say to them, you know what I always wanted to do? And you know you're in a good relationship if that person looks back at you and is excited and you're like, I've never done that either. Or even if they look back and you said, I did that in 1988. Like you've got to go experience that. I think that is a piece of it where like the things that you do in life that are always, it's not because you need to be together, it's because you want to be together. Uh, but even when it comes down to, you know, religion or what you believe in, I feel like if you can, you know, whether, whether you're the type that goes to church, whether you're a meditation person, whatever it is, if you can do that together or pray together, your life is going to become more enriched. And if for us, it's a blended family, you can find a way where everybody coexists and the events and the things that you do, your, your life just become more enriched and, and, and everything becomes better because you could all be together. It's that path of growing together through the rest of life without separating, whether it's just one or two of us or three of us, but in that relationship, me and Cindy being the parents in this scenario, we've got to be the nucleus of that family that no one can break. No matter what drama comes in, no matter what problem, no matter what manipulation when they're younger in their teens, you've got to be the power couple that always is on the same side so that you can't be manipulated and nobody can break you up. And that's, that you, if you've got a foundation that can do that, you can do anything in a family. And the ripple effect that you have on that family, when you start acting as a, as a relationship that is a good example, if you will, watch what your kids do. All of a sudden, your kids, even, even if they had issues, even if they had problems, they will start, your, your relationship and the way you live your life and the way you do the next right thing and everything in life is going to start having a ripple effect on your children and sometimes even your friends where your circle becomes stronger than ever. And, and that growing together part is just paramount to me. Great inspiration, Dean. Thank you Thank for you. that. Um, listeners, you can check out Dean's book, uh, the, the Red Flags book, as I call it in my head anyway. Um, there are links <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> there are links in the show notes that you can go find Was That a Red Flag? Um, so yeah so dean thank you so much for being a part of i'm not in an abusive relationship i wish you all the best on uh on helping others out there thank you so much it's been a great opportunity and i appreciate it thank you for listening to i'm not in an abusive relationship if these stories resonate with you and you need help please visit our website dasasmi.org that's dasasmi.org or call our hotline at 800-828-2023 we are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. 
Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.